Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Dr. Alex Kachelnik from the Department of Zoology at the University of Oxford talks about how crows make tools to find food and explains how animals think. Well, thanks very much, Jonathan. It's good to be here. And um, some of the, the clips that I'm going to show you a little later in the talk, you, I'm sure some of you at least must have seen because these are the kind of things that very often when we publish it, whether we like it or not, the media go into kind of uh, excited frenzy because they think that uh, we are either demonstrating or claiming to demonstrate things which nobody knew before about animals or things like that. And we normally tone it down, and I will a lot today because that's exactly the opposite of the message that we think should be distilled from the research we are trying to do. So we're interested in understanding the animal mind, and I'll tell you more detail in a second, but um, you get animals doing things that look clever, and if I had to give you a single message right now at the beginning that's going to go through the lecture, is that you don't need to be what people normally call clever to do clever things. Right, um, and then we'll go through that in some detail. So, if I tell you a little bit about myself to get started, um, I've been in, interested in uh, a range of things related to behavior since the beginning of my career uh, as a biologist and actually before. But when I was already working on my PhD many years ago, I came to the conclusion that behavior could be studied from very different perspectives and the kind of questions you ask are very different. And I don't particularly have a commitment um, to one view of behavior. And uh, wearing a kind of biologist hat, which I was doing there about 30-something years ago, um, I would say that when I'm a biologist, I'm interested in behavior as just another property of organisms. If the same way I could be interested in the function of the liver or the function of um, the olfactory performance of an animal or anything else, I look at behavior. And what that means is that behavior is something that is an adaptation that is the result of natural selection acting on organisms, perhaps you could define it as physiology from the skin out or something like this. It's just what organisms do in order to um, procreate most effectively and actually um, be successful in the Darwinian process of evolution. Right? That's kind of a, a biology uh, perspective. And from this point of view, um, you study the behavior of anything that uh, ranges from plants or microorganisms to, to people, but of course it's a big difference where the, the real boundaries exist, not of non-living things. And that's extremely important. Non-living things would not make sense to talk about the strategy of a river to reach the sea, even though you could have a maximizing principle that is always decreasing height so that you actually go towards that. Because the river has not been selected, did not evolve in order to achieve that. But you could talk about the objectives of an ant 
in cutting a leaf or on or fighting a parasite or whatever. So the difference is whether you're alive or not. And I'm not going to go too much into that, but an entirely different perspective. You could have it as a psychologist, because in that case, the questions you ask are more often than not about the mind. You still could be looking at behavior, but then behavior is interesting because it allows you to make inferences about that kind of black box, which is the mind of organisms, what's going on in terms of information processing or even in some cases in terms of experience when an organism behaves, right? And that's a more psychological question. And I'm also interested in taking uh, an economic perspective. And if you're an economist, what you're interested in is the logic of choice, how organisms decide when to do one thing or another. And so you study decision-making in the sense that whenever you look at an organism, it says, why does it do it this way and not, an, and not the other way? And this, you could ask completely independently of any uh, mental representation or debate. You could be asking, for example, if you look at a, at a tree, why does it grow so much or assign so many resources to the roots as opposed to the branches or the leaves? Or why does it have so many apples of that size as opposed to having fewer apples which are bigger or more apples which are smaller? And, and that's strategy. And you could say, well, the apple tree has a decision process and it should be coherent, should follow some criterion if I really understand what's going on. And that's what economists do. They are interested in the behavior of the market and sometimes say, oh, the market is a little jittery or is, is nervous or something like that. And they don't mean that they experience what we mean in everyday life when we are nervous. What they mean is that it shows some behavior which has that kind of property. So um, when you do that, you think in terms of rationality. And rationality for an economist is consistence of criteria in terms of the choices they make. So let me try to describe a, a behavioral case to start to get going on to the sort of things that we have to cope with. So let me start with um, this thing. This is when me as a psychologist, as it were. So these few slides that follow are taken from one example from the research of my colleague Nick Davis at Cambridge. I have nothing to do with this research, but I just think it's an interesting example of the complexity of animal behavior and the kind of questions we ask. This, this little bird is a Danok or a hedge sparrow, some people know it of, and is um, a rather common bird all over this country, you could find it here in the campus, and it has a kind of normal uh, behavioral or, or breeding cycle for a bird in this latitude, which is in the spring, building nests and having babies, and this is a parent, um, could be a mother or father, feeding the babies. But if you go about a month before then, you have a whole drama that I want to talk to you about, about how this situation comes to be. Right? And this is the time when the males are defending territories and the females are eating in, at, at great rate in order to uh, gather the energy that they need to produce eggs, which more or less duplicate their body mass in the course of a few days. So it's quite an extraordinary achievement to produce uh, a number of eggs by such uh, a small birds, and most birds do it. 
But at that time, what tends to happen is that males, the kind of male that we call alpha males, the dominant males, defend the territory. And this is shown here. And the females eat most of the time. And other males try to approach the female, but the alpha male try to restrain them from doing this. And at some point, the alpha male start accepting particularly kind of pestering type of um, subordinate males, and they become satellites. They are tolerated in the neighborhood, but not tolerated approaching the female. And sometimes the beta males, these ones, um, start even defending the territory against others. So there is a kind of menage a trois, it's rather complicated, where the alpha male defends, the female is foraging, and the beta males are hanging around trying to get close to the female. But when it gets interesting is that every so often the female seems to try to escape from the vigilance, the male guarding of the alpha male. And she would fly very often towards some kind of hidden uh, hedge, some bushes, whatever it is that protects her from the permanent vigilance of the male. And both males actually <coughs> would try to follow and find her. And more often than not, the alpha male would be able to stop any contact between the beta male and the female. But sometimes he's unable to do so. And when that happens, there is a very quick copulation between the beta male and the female, which happens outside the reach of the alpha male. And very often, the alpha male very quickly is in the scene of the crime, as it were. When that happens, what you get is a big, big fight and the alpha male would punish often the beta male and sometimes the, the female as well um, for this with kind of fighting and pecking at them quite savagely, right? And what follows then is something quite extraordinary. What happens is that the female then starts doing something which is perhaps euphemistically called the copulation solicitation display where she starts wagging her tail and pumping up her cloaca, and, and which is in bright colors, bright pink colors. And the normal rule in animal behavior, including birds, is that typically males accept these kind of invitations immediately. But in this case, the alpha male does not. He's very reluctant to copulate and waits for a while, and he sort of pecks at the cloaca of the female repeatedly for a while. And when that happens, after a little while, the female would expel a little white droplet. And only then, copulation by the alpha male would follow um, when that happens. Now, what's going on here? Well, one of the things that Nick Davis found was that this white little droplet, if you go and pick it up and you look at it under the microscope, is actually semen. Right? And so, if you try to understand the whole logic of this, you can build a complete narrative of this, which is more interesting and more complicated than Coronation Street or anything of that sort. What you have is that you have to accept, using anthropomorphic language, that each of the players actually has objectives. right? And that doesn't mean that he's conscious of these objectives, but I'm going to use this anthropomorphic language, just saying it behaves as if this is what it wanted. The same way you would say that a plant moves because it wants to reach the light, 
right? And so I say, each of the birds wants to have as many offspring as possible. That's what natural selection has done in terms of building the behavior of these animals. The ones which do this more efficiently are the ones we are seeing today, okay? And it turns... Um, the, 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 the one thing that happens is that it turns out that males, all males, including beta males and alpha males, would only feed the young if and only if they had had some access to the female during this crucial period that I described. If there is at least one copulation by the beta male with the female, then that male would then help a month later in feeding the young. But if he has never been able to copulate, he will just not do it. So from the point of view of the female, what she wants, and again I'm using this language, what she wants is to convince all, as many males as possible that they might be the fathers of the offspring that are born, the eggs that are laid, and the chicks that hatch a few weeks later. Because then there are more males helping her feeding the young. But of course, the, each of the males is not interested in um, the chicks doing very well if they are not his offspring. So the alpha male is trying to restrict the other males from actually having access to, um, to the female. Now, the females, when one of these um, events happen, what she tries to do with this copulation solicitation display is to induce the alpha male to copulate with her so that he has some kind of um, reason for believing that the offspring are his because he's copulating. But one thing that happens in this species is that males have particularly large testes compared with the animals of the same size, and they do this because they produce more semen than expected, and they fill the oviduct of the female so that there is no room for the semen of another male. So if another male has copulated and the male, uh, uh, the, the second one comes and copulates immediately, his semen is actually um, lost because there is no room there for any more. So the male refuses to copulate with her unless she expels a little semen, giving proof that she has room in her reproductive tract for more semen to come in. Now, all of this looks extremely smart, right? Animals do all these things, and you tell this to people who don't work on animal behavior. And, and it's, it's really fascinating. I find it fascinating, too, because it's such a, a, a number of adaptations and counter-adaptations. But let me show you something that most of us would not think of in terms of um, particularly high intelligence. This is a short movie taken of a spider, which is building a web. And you see the movement of the spider, and these are the little trails, the silk trails that is living. Now, you see, spiders normally, you don't follow them in this way. But when you start looking, you start seeing that a pattern emerges which is always different. Every time a spider builds a web, it's different from the previous one. And all of them have a structure which is, from an engineering point of view, absolutely extraordinarily economic, where you build first the big scaffold to hold the thing in place, and these are non-sticky 
um, trails. The, the, then the sticky ones are laid, and as you will see in a moment, they, they filled any gaps left by the geometry of the place, and then they go the other way with um, different kind which doesn't transmit the vibrations, but is even more effective in uh, trapping any insect that could be passing. Now, are spiders very clever engineers? Do they really understand the properties of these kind of things? You know, in order to produce silk of different kinds, what the spider is doing is mixing seven different kinds of protein right at the time of laying in different proportions so that they would be either strong or sticky and thick or thin and they would actually lay it in the right positions and do all these things. How does it do it? How does it know what it has to do? Well, it happens that it's known that in the spider there are a range of rules, rather rigid. You could program them in a robot. And they are a number, large, relatively large number, maybe 30, maybe 100. That sort of number, right? Not 10,000 and not two or three, but something of that order, where the spider knows what to do in each situation and follows these rules. And these rules include things like you may be used from uh, programming, like if X, then Y, right? And sometimes is if Y, then etc., etc. So conditional rules such that in the end they correct all the different circumstances in which they find themselves and they end up roughly for, from, with what is um, from what is gold. Sorry, let me just skip this one. So um, the issue is is the behavior of a Danuk more or less intelligent than the behavior of a spider? Let me give you another example which I find interesting. Now, this is the story of a fungus. Right? Again, not a likely candidate for high mental ability. But this fungus has the following property. There are some ants. This story comes from the work of David Hughes and is, um, in Thailand. And these ants typically live in the canopy of the trees in the forest of Thailand and they go about their business. You know, there is a queen there in the center in the colony and other workers that never go down to the ground. But one day, if one of these ants gets infected by this particular fungus, it changes her behavior completely. Before then, it was a kind of robot behaving for the benefit of the queen. After that, it changes its behavior, it starts walking down on the trunk of a tree, looks for a leaf at about a meter from the ground, because that happens to be the right humidity, and about noon, which is when humidity and temperature is right, it bites on the underneath of a leaf and stays in, um, in what is called tetanus, a, a, a permanent contraction of the, of the jaws. It keeps hanging from a, from a leaf and stays there alive without moving. And then the fungus starts growing little sticky things that come out of the body of the, of the ant and glue the ant to the leaf. At that point, a body starts growing out of the brain, of the, the head of the ant. It goes up 
and produces the fungus that then explodes and sends spores in the air that go and infect other, um, other ants. Now, this fungus, when you look in the, in the electronic microscope, what you find is that it grows um, filaments in the brain of the ant that go exactly to the motor centers that would actually control the ant as if it were a robot, right? But to do now, not what the ant has been designed by natural selection to do, which is to serve the reproduction of the queen, but actually to serve the reproduction of the fungus. That the fungus knows, inverted commas, more about the brain of the ant than any modern neurobiologist does. Knows exactly where it has to go to do the ant, do this or the, the other. If you ask one of, uh, of our colleagues to actually do something to... We don't know how the brain of the ant works, but the fungus knows. How has the fungus learned this? It has learned it by natural selection. So once again, this is very smart behavior that does not seem to require being smart yourself when you do it. You can have a number of rules. And we also knew that you can be very clever and you can still do very stupid things. So the, it doesn't go one way or another. But let's try to see what happens when people now do things that appear to be clever. And in the next example, all I want to show you is a child. This is uh, Joshua Sloman. This is the, the grandchild of... Um, Aaron Sloman, um, a colleague who's a professor of artificial intelligence, um, he showed me his grandchild when he was 19 months old, playing and trying to understand the properties of hooks. And what this child is doing is trying to change from one little wagon to another for reasons that are only understood to himself. He wants to play this and do some changes. And look at this. Here, the child, this has come apart, and he wants to hook it. And so he gets it. He gets rid of the other one. And now, look, he knows that there's nothing here, so it couldn't be done. There's something there. So that's a candidate. But he was unlucky. He got it the wrong way, and he's going with the two eyes against each other. Here is where the hook is. But he's trying and now I remove the video from this in case what he said was um, improper. But he really is getting very crossed with this, and he just doesn't understand why it doesn't work. He's not doing it by reasoning, right? And he leaves it and goes to play with something else instead for this time. Now, if this child, you look at it within a week or two weeks from this video being picked up, it will do things perfectly all right. It has tried enough, it's worked once or twice, it's generalized, and it knows now this particular stimulus now has to be the one which is incomplete, etc. But does that mean that the child now understands the physics of hooks operating one way or another, or has it done something entirely mechanical acquired by trial and error? And if you say that evidence points more towards the latter, then how much of our behavior is acquired that way? When this child, a few months later, is fully verbal, and you can ask it, why do you hook it this way or the other, he will give you a perfectly uh, rational explanation for what he's doing. And you would think that that 
post hoc explanation is actually the origin, the causal origin of behavior. In the same way that if I ask people here if they know how to ride a bicycle, and I ask them, why don't you fall when you're, what keeps you up when you're riding a bicycle, I'm sure that either you would say, I have not the slightest idea, I haven't thought about it, or most of you would give a wrong um, answer. Because we can do things, things which are very difficult, without actually understanding the physics, just by learning, by trying and error. So how much of our behavior is of that kind? Let me show you another example. And this case, too, is of uh, Matthias Kaselnik, who is my grandchild. And this was um, photographed, this is, when he was 15 months old, about four or five months ago. And Matthias likes ice cream. And typically, when the parents are not there, the grandparents give him as much ice cream as he wants. But the parents are different. And in these occasions, they were around. And he asked for ice cream, and um, he was told that he couldn't have it. So he started to engage in a hierarchy of strategies that was very nice to see. So the first strategy was to look angel-faced and start asking in different ways to the different adults in his neighborhood. And it's very difficult to resist, but the parents can and so he wasn't, that didn't succeed in this case. So strategy two was direct procurement, as I would call it. He went to the freezer and started trying to open it. And that failed again because he wasn't strong enough and so he couldn't open the door of the freezer. He knew that this delicious ice cream was there behind but he couldn't actually reach it. And then strategy three is to start thinking. Right? And you could see that he was upset, but not just in a passive way, but actually looking for a solution. And at a particular point, he changed completely, and he rushed to the garden door. And once he reached the garden door, which is in the opposite direction, I should say, from the freezer, he actually focused on the key. And he grabs the key, he rushed to the freezer door and started pushing the key against the freezer door. And of course, it failed, right? So he tried to do something that didn't work in this case. So far, I showed you semi-successful thing. Now, to me, this example brings a number of questions. One of them is whether, in spite of having failed, he actually did something clever. He actually somehow reasoned about things and deployed a solution that could have worked, but it just happened not to. And sometimes this kind of ploy succeeds and sometimes it doesn't. So, but is this evidence that he was smart? Well, one thing he could have been doing, if we start asking what really went on in his head, is that he may have generalized from things that did work that he saw from others. I mean, he saw people opening the garden door with a key and perhaps many other doors, and he said, oh, doors are something that hinge, doors are something that stop me from something which is pleasurable, keys are something that open doors, and I could use a key for removing the, the obstacle, etc., etc. We don't know. He could have only thought this key, this particular object, or any key, 
And we would have evidence if we could see him, for example, using a plastic uh, representation of a key, say a toy key or whatever, or something that was morphologically very different from the key that he used. From this kind of evidence, we could construct some hypothesis, at least, about what's going on in his brain. This time, we don't have the data. But what I want to come against is the temptation we have of looking at this behavior and immediately explaining as a very clever construct and something that went on in the brain of this uh, organism and that actually um, is the, the mechanism by which complexity is acquired in behavior. Now, think about the question of the, the notion of insight. This is used by many of my colleagues, and it's very common that people say, oh, we showed insightful behavior in species A or B or C because they did something clever of the kind that I showed you, which I think is, is cute. The classic thing that people would think is that, okay, in the mind of this child, there are lots of different things, you know, toys, animals, and, and, and some of them are things which are related to the present problem that the child is facing. And he has also a representation of his goal, and there is an arrow in this direction by which the representation of the, of the goal affects the network of interrelationships between representations in the mind of the child, and some work is being done there to actually see what can I do with all the bits and pieces I have in my mind to actually reverse the key the, the arrow and actually get to the goal that I want. And what people think is basically the child, or the animal in these cases, has what is called an aha experience, right? An experience suddenly with which an adaptive response, which was not arrived at by trial and error, it emerges from the behavior of the animal, right? And this concept is a very old one. In, in behavior of both animals and people, and people are still quoting it today. So the notion is that, yes, there were all these things, but some of these relations are weaker and get lost, and after a little while, these things stop being considered. You only have the things that matter, in this case it's a key and the freezer and, and well, the door and the key, and the arrow is reversed, and you say, okay, by doing something on this, I can actually get at the goal that I had. How did I do it? I did it by insight. Suddenly, this got reorganized in my mind, and this happened. Now, how scientific is that? How different is to use this as an explanation from saying that suddenly the great architect had an influence on the brain of the child, and voila, abracadabra. Now, the child knows how to do it. In my view, it's not different at all. If we say that, if we, without any further um, exploration, we simply say, oh, the animal or the child or the grown-up, whoever is who are studying, had an insight, and insight is the cause of the behavior of the animal, we are just putting a label to something that before we didn't know, and that we still didn't know, but we just call it somehow. And this gives you the interpretation, the, the illusion, that you have explained it. Basically, you have transported the God that was out acting here to something which is supposed to act inside the mind of this child, and that's exactly the same job. So 
to me, that's very unsatisfactory. So what we are trying to do is to escape from that routine and tease apart the bits of intelligent behavior in a way that lead to greater understanding. Now, <clears throat> classically, insight has been attributed to the behavior of chimpanzees. In this quote, is, there's a description of experiments done during the First World War in, um, on chimps by uh, something called Wolfgang Keller, who actually, maybe we can just read a few things. What, this chimp, what they did was to put some bananas hanging up from the, from the ceiling and some blocks in different places, and, and Keller was describing what the chimps did. And he says, well, after another, a number of things by, done by trial and error, say the theme common to each of these attempts is that to all appearances, the chimps were solving the problem by a kind of cognitive trial and error. What that basically means is instead of trying behaviors, like I show you about Joshua Sloman, and sort of trying to see what worked and then acquiring that, the chimps are supposed to have done it in their brains. When they were sitting in a corner doing nothing, in the open, actually, they were doing trial and error, doing things with the representations in their head until one seemed to succeed, and then they would come and actually doing it um, in, in the real world. And this is supposed to be insight and planning, which is an explanation for what the chimps did. Now, look at this film. What I'm going to show you here is the work of someone called Robert Epstein, who um, is it's not someone I agree with every word he says, but he plays a very important role in the community because he's a very staunch behaviorist. He doesn't want to attribute mind to any um, organism if, unless it desperately has to. And so what he did was to pick a, a, a few pigeons and train them to do separate things on different days. One day they would be trained to peck at a yellow plastic banana, which was at about this level. And the plastic banana was a joke to Keller, right? And on other days, they were trained to push a block of wood for different reasons. And just by pushing it, the, the pigeons were um, rewarded. And on another day, he extinguished the behavior that is convinced somehow, I'm not going to go into the details, to avoid jumping so that these pigeons learn not to jump up and down. And one day, he put the banana not at the level of the pigeon, but higher up. And he also put the um, block in some other part of the cage. And this that you're going to see is the first time that one pigeon faces such a situation. Now, the pigeon knows that by pecking the banana, he will get food. He can't jump. He won't do it, because he's learned that that doesn't work. And in the past, he has been rewarded also for pecking at this. And it's going back and forth. Come on, it's not that difficult. Now stands on it, so that's higher, but in the wrong place. Right? So it hasn't put it together. Now it pecks. That worked in the past. Now it doesn't work still. That's getting better and better, and now he did it. Now, when we are dealing with a pigeon, 
most people would not say that what has happened is that this pigeon had a great insight. Because he had been trained before to these different things by trial and error. So all he did was somehow to put it together. But what is different in what the chimps did? The chimps, which were 30, in many cases 40 years old, sometimes 20 years old, they had a long history of learning different components of the problem, jumping up and down, stepping on blocks, putting one block on top of each other, and all they had to do was the same as the pigeon, put it together for this occasion so that it actually worked. So we cannot, from just the observation of this behavior, conclude that something really has gone on in, of the kind of these internal manipulations that are claimed typically by these um, explanations. So we want to examine the behavior of animals, and we want to do it in a more analytical way. And because of that, we work, or I work, and my group of people or collaborators work on behavior of animals that use tools. Right? And this is, we do it not because we are convinced that using tools require you to be clever, but because we think that using tools can be particularly revealing as uh, to the kind of understanding of physics that these organisms may have. So let's move in that direction. In the first place, tool use is infrequent, but it's not something that is restricted to one group of animals. Depending on how you define it, you could say that archer fish use, which what they do is they, they fill their... their mouth with water and then they contract it so that they spit water at insects which are on the vegetation above so that the flies or whatever it is fall to the water and they can eat it. So they are using in a sense water as a tool. Or you could think of, of these uh, crabs which have little anemone growing, stinging anemone growing in their pincers so that they can use it as a form of defense. And that they are using another organism as a tool. Or you have the case of spiders that build webs. This is the spider and this is its much larger prey. You have vultures that are able to crack eggs, ostrich eggs using stones. You have finches in the Galapagos that use twigs to extract grubs from food. And you have herons, these are very clever. They actually drop little floating uh, amounts of food to attract fish and when the fish come they stab them. Right? So they use bait. So you could think that the bait is a kind of tool. So different animals do it. But I'm going to focus on a different kind of tool use. Let me first show you an experiment, um, film taken in Congo by Cricket Sons and collaborators of a chimp doing the kind of behavior that we are interested in. This is a termite mount. And this chimp, let me just make it a bit dark. So what the chimp wants to do is to crack the, as it were, the, the, the skin of, the, of this uh, colony and make a hole and then start extracting. But look at it, it has a fine twig in its mouth. And it's using a big one to make a hole and then the little one to actually put it in there and start eating the, the termites, sorry, that climb into that. That's pretty smart. On the other hand, if you go to New Caledonia, which is an island in the South Pacific, I'm going to describe in some detail, you occasionally see these animals. This is a crow, a New Caledonian crow. This is a, a rotten tree which is full of uh, larvae of beetles, which make all these holes. And what the 
crow is doing is poking with this twig in different holes until it manages to fish a larva to actually make it bite the twig and can pull it out in this way to extract it. Okay? Well, this is the sort of behavior. I want to go in more detail, so let me cut it short for a moment. Now, there are a number of questions we'd like to understand. While one of them is why do so few species show tool-oriented behavior? Which selective pressures promote tool-oriented behavior? Why some animals do it and others don't? What do tool users understand about what the tools are doing? Whether using tools is in any sense more cognitive than what the birds do when build nests. Lots of species of birds build nests, but very few use tools. So why is this restriction? We also want to understand whether to be clever makes it possible to use tools or the use of tools promotes the development of intelligence. Many people think that the reason humans are so smart and have big brains is because they use tools from an early stage of development, of, 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 of phylogenetic development, of evolution, and then the use of tools promoted an advantage for high physical cognition. Right? And others say that because they were clever, because they had language and social interactions which were complex and other things of that sort, then they develop as a secondary feature the ability to use tools. We don't really know which way it went. And, well, many things, cumulative technology is only known among humans, and we don't understand why that is the case. That simply means that you don't start from scratch in every generation, but you learn from what others have solved in their lives, and then you build up on that to make it better and better and better, as we all do. I mean, we all use this technology that we can't understand because we are standing on the shoulders of those who did it before, right? Now, New Caledonia is here in the Pacific. That's Australia. It's an island of about three, 400 kilometers long, and um, this is where we work. Right? And these animals populate this kind of forest, but they also live in drier forests like this one. This is our field site, and it's, it's not a terrible bad place to spend your time in the field. Unfortunately, I don't do it. Christian Roots is the uh, colleague of mine in my group who is actually living and doing all the field work at the moment. Um, Well, this is the sort of places we are. This is just to show you a curiosity that we used to go through this place that was quite um, a challenge to cross every day, but it went fine. But one day there were big rains, and um, this was all covered in water. And um, one of our uh, students there thought that the water doesn't make any difference. The substrate must be the same whether it's water or not. And what he didn't know was that the water the rain had been sufficiently strong that this that you see here had actually gone back to about there. And so when this was covered in water, he just proceeded to go there, and our uh, car started to float downstream. And he managed to get out of the window, stand on the, um, on the roof of the car. And when the car reached a, a rather uh, drier place, the, all the lights started to blink and up and down, and the radio started to make funny noises, but the car never moved again. So that was a big loss. Anyway, these kind of things happen. Now, what 
Sorry? 10 minutes. 10 minutes, okay. So what these crows do is they forage for these larvae. This is the adult. This is the, lar the beetle. This is the larva. This is the kind of places where they leave their tools. And this is a, a bird that you see in action here. And here you can see the work of a student called Jolion Troshanko that is trying to understand how the birds actually use the tools specifically to make the larvae bite and then pull up. And Jolion got this movie out of building this thing, which is an apparatus that looks like a natural tree, but it has a number of holes. You see it in a moment. This is an unmarked wild bird. And each of these holes has a, a test tube, and there is a, a video camera inside. And when the bird starts foraging, you can see here in split screen what is happening inside. Okay? This is the larva being filmed, and this is what happens when the bird goes in and out. And what the bird wants is the larva to bite this so that it would actually uh, be pulled out. And the question is that the bird knows what it's doing. Does it really aim at the jaws of the larva, or is it just poking and this happens by accident? So this is the kind of data that uh, Jolion collects in the field. You got it, and it fell you know, another one. That was just an accident. But you see the kind of things these animals do in the wild. Here you see a larva photograph when he's still holding the stick in his jaws. Now, I was going to show you this, but I'm short of time. This is just to show that actually getting the larvae out of, the, um, of their burrows is not easy at all. This is a different, four different movies showing me failing to actually extract one of the larvae. But I'll cut this because I have more interest in showing you what the animals actually do. This is a, a clip that many people have seen before, but some, I'm sure, will not have. So we tried to see whether the birds could choose the right tool to get at this basket, which contained food in the bottom. One of the crows stole the, the hook so that this bird only had a straight wire and is trying to get the, the basket with this straight piece of wire. And it fails. So what it does is it jumps the wire in this uh, Jaffa tape in the bottom and is doing something wasn't quite clear. This is the first time, by the way. And it tries again and it's not clear what it's doing. And so far we don't know whether it's just aiming the, the wire at the basket all the time, even when it jumped it in there. But you will see that then it did something quite spectacular, at least to our eyes. What it did is going somewhere else, on a place where there was a gap there where it, she could jump the, the wire, you see, which is held there, and is pulling from the far side and kind of levering it, and there's absolutely no food in there, so it's not tackling at this. And then it came back and succeeded in, in getting this. Now, when we first time we saw that, we were absolutely flabbergasted. We just were asking, what did the bird understand? And the first question is, maybe what they do in nature is typically kind of stab 
at something and pull from the other side. So it's just repeating movements which are common in nature. So he thought one way to know whether it understands this is to make this movement impossible and see whether the animal has a representation of what it wants to achieve. What we did for that was to give it a different kind of material. In this case, a strip of aluminium that was too soft so that it couldn't be uh, jumped into the base of the tube. And this is in here. So this thing here is now straight and is a, is a little piece of tape. And the basket is the same here. And look, now it's bending the proximate side, turning out this, and actually getting the basket out with this new tool. So here, the animal did a movement which was exactly the opposite of the one it had done before, right? And seemed to understand that the hook had to be in the right side. I should um, perhaps comment here that when studies were made of chimpanzees and their understanding of hooks and of little children, it was found that they find it extremely difficult. But here there's something else that the, this clip shows. This is just accidental. The bird couldn't get the food out of the, of the basket, so it took it somewhere else, and it's now trying to get it, and failing, and suddenly it seems to remember something, goes back, gets the tool, and now uses the tool for a different function. So it seemed to actually remember that it had this instrument there. Now, I'm going to skip these this two, but basically what we do is we do a number of transformations of the task. But sometimes, like Matthias, they get something wrong, and this is what actually tells us more of the way they are representing the situation. And this is one such example. This bird actually was given a hooked stick made with with wood. So it's nothing magic here. They typically use these sticks in the wild. And there's a hole there, and there's a basket at the bottom of this. This is twice the speed at which it happened. So that's the basket there. And we were trying to study here the details of whether it knew how to use a hook. And after a little trial and failing, the bird succeeds, as you will see in a second. This is a different animal, of course. And now he got it out, and he gets the food, and it looks inside and sees that there is no more food. Now what would you do then? Look what it does. This animal has never been reinforced for putting things in these things. So it seems to be, if we were to anthropomorphize this situation, it seems to think, oh, this thing gets filled in the bottom. So I'll put it back there, right? And we can't, of course, say that, but it's... To be honest, although I started this lecture in a very conservative approach, I ran out of ideas for how to exclude this very intelligent debating in the mind of the animal. But sometimes we can do, it does this two or three more times, so let's skip this. Now, I want to show you, as the final two examples, two quick uh, studies, um, more recent, from last year um, and this year, that actually show the use of more than one tool to achieve one goal. This was supposed to be something that only chimps could do. One example is here. This is from the work of Dora Bairo in, in, in uh, Tetsuro Matsuzawa's site. Um, 
in Africa. And you see a chimp with a mother cracking nuts. And this is important because there are two tools being used. There is um, a, a stone in which you place the, um, the nut, and there's another little stone that you use to crack, to crack it, right? And so this combination, and that's the, the, the baby which is learning the trade, and in the, in the back you have the same. So can other animals do these combinations? Well, this is another case of a chimp which is also using two tools, but in a sequence more similar to the one you've seen before. It comes to a foraging site with already a tool in her mouth, the youngest in the back, and you'll see now in a minute. This is filmed all by CCTV cameras which are left in the forest in places which are known to be hot spots for chimps to come. This is also from the work of Cricket, Sons, and collaborators. Now, it gets a thick thing, a thick stick. It has the little one here, and does it very much the way you or, or, or I would do it in our gardens, to make a hole. And once the hole is done, then it gets the other piece of the kit. Okay, it tries in a different hole. It, uh, you would see this to do it roughly the same, and eventually uses the thin stick to actually allow the termites um, to grow, this is what it's doing, to, to crawl on top of the thin stick and starts collecting them in, in its mouth. So could some other species do it? To cut the, the story short, with Joe Wimpenny and other collaborators in the group, we did the following very devious experiment to see if these crows of ours could actually plan things. And the way we did it was as follows. And try, I'll tr try to follow, they say, it has a couple of, of, of complications. Here there is a tube. In the bottom of this tube there is food. And there is a little stick there, tiny little stick, which is of course no good for reaching the food. It's too short. But here there is a nice long stick with a thing in the end which is good enough to reach the food. But what we did was to put this sufficiently deep inside the tube so that not even with this little stick they could reach at that. But here there are other sticks which could not be reached with a beak but could be reached with a short stick but are too short to get the food. So the only logical solution which we call the vice-chancellor solution because we gave this problem to the vice-chancellor of Oxford University and to our surprise, he solved it, not as fast as our birds, but um, with equal efficiency. And so the solution is to use a short stick to get one of the medium ones, then get the long one, and then get the food. And the animal has to do it not by trying many times in different orders, but actually by looking at the configuration and then solving the problem. And this is one such example. The bird has been seeing the scene from above and now comes here. And very clearly seems to know that this is the stick it needs, by the way it looks. It doesn't even try this. It goes there, look what it does with the short stick in a second. 
throws it away, gets this, and turns it around, so that he has this thing in the right direction, seems to probe there, it's too short, throws this one, again turns it around, and now it uses it to collect the food. Now, this convinced us that these animals seem to be able to create in their minds sequences of actions. We don't know how at all, but they can plan ahead to actions that they haven't yet experienced, and um, our task is to try to unravel that. So that's just an example of this thing. But in this latest example, this final one, what I'm going to show you is one recent experiment where the idea was to test whether what these animals needed to solve a complicated task. And this was the result of observing the work of some colleagues of ours from Cambridge, Nathan Emery and, and Christopher Bird, who published a paper in which rooks, birds with not normally used tools, seem to be capable of dropping stones on an apparatus to, re to act on a platform and release food in that way the first time. And we asked the question, how could it be, how could the animals know that a stone would be effective if they never had any experience? So we did the following thing. <clears throat> Here is the same apparatus as, as uh, Bird and Emery use. Basically, it's a long tube, a platform held by magnets, food is here, and stones are available. And if you drop a stone, it would actually release this platform, and then food would be released there, and the bird would be able to eat it. Okay? Now, we gave this to six birds, six New Caledonian crows, and none of them solved the task. We were not surprised, because we were asking, how could they do it if they didn't even know that this was a platform rather than a solid part of the instrument? So what we did is we created two groups. One of them was trained in the same way as the previous study had trained the animals. And this is by initially putting stones close to this and allowing the animals by accident to push a stone into the tube so that it operated the platform and then food was released. And then in the critical test, you put the stones away and there is no platform here. And the two animals that we did in this condition solved the problem immediately exactly as the rooks had done. But of course these animals, potentially like the bird that you saw put in the basket bag, had not done the action but had seen the stones falling and had seen the stones acting there. So they could be just reproducing the visual image of something that they saw before. So what we did is create another condition where we gave these animals a shortened version of the tube. You see, comparing with this, this is cut here, tube is there, so that they could actually peck at this platform by just trying to accidentally. But then they didn't see any stone at all in their experience. They simply had this thing, they could peck at this, and then food was delivered. And you will see in the movie in a second, the bird first pecking at this and getting it. And then there is a clip, and you see what happened when the bird was exposed again to this situation after having learned that they could dislodge the platform just by pecking at it directly. And this is shown here. So here the animal is pecking at that, and then food is delivered, and it gets out. 
So he did this a number of times. Next time there's a long tube and there are stones there. And the bird tries all sorts of things. They are very persistent. This is a bird in the middle of molt. That's why it's missing feathers. Now it goes to these stones and seems to be able to use the stone for the first time that it sees it as an extension of its own beak. Now this animal may have learned in previous experience that in fact a falling stone is something that exerts some force. And it also knows that it exerted some force with its beak. And it just put the two things together. So it's, a, it's a, an exercise in generalization where you only need one further little step to achieve what appears at first instance to be a fascinating new invention. And maybe most of the things we do are constructed that way. And the task of the animal behaviorist is to unravel the little processes by which these kind of things actually evolve in the mind of our animals. So, trying to conclude somehow, we shouldn't have excessive expectations. <laughs> the beauty of the theory of natural selection is that it demonstrated that the extraordinary complexity of life, from the behavior of funguses to the beauty of an orchid to the mind of people, can be the result of a short-sighted process of simple competition in the level of success, without any supervision, without any consciousness of goal, because there's nobody actually leading the action, things become more and more complex and better and better adapted. And the question is whether in the mind simple processes of this kind could lead to the complexity that we see when you observe the way animals or humans behave. Many people consider this kind of explanation as a kind of killjoy explanation. We would like to say that the animals or us are really very smart and not simply building up solutions out of little blocks that make these things uh, bit by bit. But I think, and this is plagiarizing Darwin, that there is grandeur in this view of life resulting of great complexity and great beauty out of very simple and unsupervised processes. And our task as scientists is not to just marvel, which we are well allowed to do at these kind of things, but to actually go deep down and tease it into pieces, analyze it, and see what is actually the substrate under that. And I'm going to finish just to give the final word to the bird. Thank you very much. <laughs>